Hey, Life Church Ken, Roger here, student director. Uh, glad to hear that you're tuning in today. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a brand new listener, welcome for the first time or maybe the first couple times. Be sure to give us a subscribe. If you want to participate in what God is doing in this community and in this church, love to give you an opportunity to do so. Be sure to check out our now page where you can uh, figure out how to give and participate in that work. We have an awesome message today from Pastor Jared. Uh, He's going to be talking about a sensitive topic, a topic that has often been handled in a way that causes uh, anxiety and fear or or even harm. But I think he handles it it with a a shepherd's heart uh, and a concern and a love for those who are listening to it. So it's, it's going to be awesome. I did include this week one of the worship songs just because I, I believe, A, it's a powerful song, and B, I think it's important to include it in the heart of what Jared is trying to say and the experience he is leading us through. So I'll give it a listen. I'll connect to you in a little bit. Amen. You can have a seat. Welcome to Life Church, everybody. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new here, I want to say a special welcome to you. I want to make sure that you get connected. So if you're online, you can engage with us in the comments section. If you're in person, you have a Connect card on your chair or near your chair. And we'd love for you to fill that out, turn it into the Welcome Center, and we'd love to get connected with you, help you take a next step. Uh, We have been in a series called Parables. We've been in Matthew chapter 13. There's just a whole chunk of parables in there. Jesus is telling stories about who he is and about the kingdom of God. Last week, we took a quick break, and we had our friend Kevin Butcher here, and we just sat up here on stage, had a conversation about the love of God, and it was awesome. Uh, Talking about the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, it's everlasting, it's ongoing, it's powerful, right? And then I read ahead uh, to this week's parable that we're going to talk about and we're going to finish this week. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really excited about this one. This one doesn't sound all that fun. And in fact, especially coming after the week where we talked about the love of God, this one feels like the opposite of that. And so I just want to let you know, I'm not really looking forward to talking about this one at first. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to look at this parable. It's in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 47. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We always have the words on the screen so you can join along in that way. Matthew 13, verse 47. This is the parable of the net, or sometimes referred to as the parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down and sorted the good fish, into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Merry Christmas, everybody. Doesn't that just put you in the holiday spirit, right? Man, you, you could probably imagine why I was feeling the way I felt. Like, how do we begin to even talk about this? Especially coming after last week, where it's just the love and the grace and the beauty of God now talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, what in the world is going on? And especially if you're newer to the Bible or newer to church, you would look at this and be like, see, I knew there was a catch. I knew there was a catch, uh, pun intended there. Actually, I didn't even catch that. Uh, there's a catch because the love of God, there has to be con- some conditions here. Eventually, it's going to turn negative. Right? And some of you are my, maybe thinking that, of like, yep, see, that's, that's why I don't want anything to do with Christianity, because it talks about things like that. I don't want to talk about things like that. How do we 
talk about this. How do we reconcile this with the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? In fact, looking at a glance at this passage, it would feel like there's no love here. I don't sense the love of God in this passage. Let's talk about this. Let's unpack it. Let's start in verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net thrown into the water, caught fish of every kind. Let's just start there. We'll break it down piece by piece. This first part, I think it's important actually to mention this for a reason that I'll mention in just a second. The Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, in Greek originally, never mentions the word fish anywhere. Never mentions fish. Now, there's a couple of reasons I think that might be. One of them might just simply be, well, he's talking to an audience who lives by a large body of water. There's lots of fishermen in that community. They would have understood. He, he doesn't necessarily have to mention fish for them to get it. So maybe that's why he didn't mention it. I have another thought, too, as to why, in, in some cases, I actually think the other interpretation, the, other, the actual original Greek, might actually be more helpful for us because uh, all it says is it caught every kind of thing, a net that caught every kind of thing. Because what we do as Americans and as American Christians specifically is we read the Bible and we want to immediately jump to life application. We want to immediately know, okay, what, what does this passage have to say for me? Well, later on, it talks about good fish and bad fish. Well, which one am I? Am I a good fish or am I a bad fish? And if I'm a bad fish, how do I become a good fish? And maybe if I'm a bad fish, well, actually, there's no, there's no hope in this passage. Jesus doesn't offer any solutions, so this is really bad news. That's how we tend to approach the scriptures. We just jump immediately to life application by looking at every little micro piece of scripture and trying to apply it to our lives when actually, I don't actually think Jesus is trying to do that here. I think he's just trying to tell a story. And, and if anything, if there's anything that we can draw from this that is consistent, whether it's every kind of fish or every kind of thing, I think the reality from this verse alone is just the simplicity that there is diversity in the kingdom of God. There's diversity in the kingdom of God. And we see that in other parts of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. So we've got this diverse group of things that are being caught up in a net. And this is a drag net, so it's dragging through an, a, a specific section of a body of water, and it's going to get all kinds of things, which is why it talks about sorting. That's the next verse, verse 48. It sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. Now, before we jump immediately to life application, before we jump to the explanation of the parable, uh, there is a sorting that takes place. Let's just talk about that and the context. Earlier, there's a parable about the wheat and the weeds. They grow up together, but after there's a harvest, then there's a separation that takes place. This parable also has a separation that's taking place. Now, in this context, again, there's no negative emotion attached to this for the original hearers of this parable. They're thinking, well, yeah, of course. If you're a fisherman, you, you're going to have a, you're going to drag in that through. You're going to get, you're going to get all kinds of things. You're going to certainly get fish, uh, good fish. You're also probably going to get some maybe mutilated fish, some dead fish. You probably might even get like a chewed up sandal and a broken piece of pottery as well. It's all coming with the net. So what you got to do is you got to sit on shore and you got to separate all of the things. Now, any fisherman worth their salt is going to only take the good fish to the marketplace to sell. If they take all of that other stuff, the customers are going to come by and be like, uh, yeah, no, no thanks, I don't need a broken piece of pottery in my fish. Thank you very much. I'll move on to the next fisherman. No, you just put the good fish in there. 
So up to this point, there's no negative emotion attached to this. Nobody's thinking about, man, God's a real curmudgeon here. No, they're just, they're just hearing about a fishing story. Then we get into verse 49. We get the explanation of the parable. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. We get fiery furnace, we get weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now our emotions have been pricked a little bit. Now we're beginning to wonder, okay, this, this feels a little fearful and anxiety-inducing even. Maybe just check your emotions even now as you hear this. What does that do in you? How do you think about this? Now, this is one of the giant turns that takes place in the parable. We've talked about this, that each parable we've shared in this series has, has just uh, started here, but then taken a the little turn and gone this direction, and then another slight turn and gone this direction, and each time you're beginning to think, okay, I think I understand God, but then you're like, oh, no, no, there's, there's more, and now I think I get it. Nope, nope, there's still more, and now this parable, it's like a way giant turn in another direction couple reasons why. First of all, uh, we do get an explanation with this one. We don't get an explanation with all of the parables. Uh, the ones that we do are the sower and then the wheat and the weeds. Those are long parables with long explanations. This one, short and sweet. It's a short and sweet parable, and it's also a short and sweet explanation. But also what sets this one apart is that the other ones are much more present tense, kind of like this is what God is doing here and among us. This parable is now different in that it's saying this is what God will do. Much more futuristic tense. So we get the explanation, but also within the explanation, all we get is what it seems to be is destructive. Kind of fear and anxiety inducing. We get end of the world, fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think that makes anybody feel a great sense of love and joy, right? This is hard. Now, we get these phrases earlier. We get those also in the wheat and the weeds parable. And in fact, these are the only two times in the entire New Testament where these three phrases, end of the world, fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the only place in the New Testament where these three show up together. Why? because they pack a punch. They absolutely come with some emotion attached to it, as you might imagine. Now, you're going to find these individual phrases scattered throughout uh, some of the New Testament and a little bit in the Old Testament as well, but this is the only place where they all three come together. This is intense. There's a lot of weight here. And I can imagine this is a moment where now the fear and the anxiety starts to set in, the shame and the guilt starts to set in a little bit more. And it feels like the thing that we were talking about last week, which is the love of God, the everlasting, all-flowing love of God that just continues to flow, all of a sudden feels like that was just an aberration. And now we're talking about the end of the world. So what do we do with that? How do we handle this? How do we reconcile these things? And would you believe me if I told you that I believe that the love of God is actually extremely present right here in this parable and in this explanation. Let me show you why I think that is the case. First of all, I want you to notice something. For those of you who have, who have spent some time reading through Matthew chapter 13, there's a possibility that you might have missed a key little factor. 
I'm going to show you what happens right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13 in verse 2, before he even begins to share the parables. It says this, a large crowd soon gathered around him. Okay, so Jesus is in a boat. There's a whole bunch of people, a large crowd on a hillside that is listening to him tell these parables. Okay, so that's one thing. Now, fast forward to verse 36. After he shared a couple of the parables, it says Jesus left the crowds and went inside. He went inside to a house, a small house, where now he is just with his disciples. Here's why I think that's important. Jesus only uses these three phrases, end of the world, weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire furnace. He only uses these when he is inside the house with his closest followers and friends, his disciples. He doesn't use these phrases with the large crowd on the hillside. That's an important piece to pay attention to, in my opinion. And I want to share my theory as to why I think this is. And it is, I want to be clear, it is just a theory. I'm not trying to introduce some brand new, newfangled theology that's going to mess you up. I don't, I don't want that to be the case, okay? I just want us to recognize that we all, the moment we pick up a Bible, become interpreters. We all are interpreters. This is an English translation of a German and a Latin and a Greek translation. We all, at that point, are having to do some interpretation. And so as I look at this and I study this, the thing that I tend to see here is this idea that Jesus is with a large crowd and now he's with a smaller crowd and he's beginning to discuss these heavy matters. Here's why I think it is. I think it's because Jesus recognizes the weight of talking about these three phrases all together. End of the world, that's heavy. Fiery furnace, heavy. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's heavy. I think Jesus not only acknowledges the weight of it, but then recognizes the sensitivity required to talk about these things with his closest followers. See, he goes into an intimate setting, an intimate room to discuss these heavy matters, but he also pays attention to how and when and with whom these matters are discussed. Now, here's the thing. Unfortunately, these matters have been talked about very casually and often in lots of churches, especially in America. Some of you maybe have grown up in churches like this, where it's been nonstop, all the time, fire and brimstone. Every single message, you're going to get a message about heaven and hell. You're going to get these kitschy little phrases of, you better turn or you're going to burn. Or you get these marquees or these signs out in front of churches that say, uh, where do you plan to sit in eternity, smoking or non? It's like, it's like I don't know the, how helpful that is. Like, nobody's looking at that sign and be like, that seems like a church that really knows about the love of God, right? Like, is that helpful to just random passersby? There's a sensitivity to the way in which Jesus approaches these matters. Now, while there have been a whole lot of churches and a whole lot of pastors that have shared extremely destructive messages and sermons based on passages just like this one, without any sensitivity, without any uh, sort of acknowledgement and appreciation for the weight of these matters, while that is true, that doesn't mean that I can now somehow just avoid the passages altogether. 
we still got to talk about it. It's still there. I can't just run away from it. So how do we do this? How do we talk about this? What did Jesus do? He left a large crowd. He went inside. He talked about it with his closest friends and his followers. So what are we today? <laughs> are, are we the lar- large crowd on a hillside, or are we sort of in the house? A small group of people. It's hard to say. I, I don't know everybody's story. I, I can't necessarily sit down and dialogue with each one of you about this individual heavy matter. And, and then there's people that are watching online and there's people that are going to listen to the podcast later. I don't get to have an exchange with them. So in a lot of ways, it would seem like we're just the large crowd and maybe we should just stay away from these passages for now until we can just have an individual one-on-one. But see, I don't, I don't think we can do that. And I think we can treat it a little bit like we're the inner house with a small group of people. I, I can't do that necessarily physically, but I want to do that in terms of a posture change. Here's what would happen in the first century. When a rabbi was teaching, oftentimes it was in a synagogue, there's smaller rooms, and oftentimes they were sitting to teach. And as they would sit, they would dialogue. They would teach a little bit, and then people would have the opportunity to ask questions, and, and there would be an exchange, and they would begin to talk about these matters. It was very normal in that context. We have a little bit of a different context. I'm not necessarily going to have a Q&A right now because I think we would be here until Christmas Eve, which is maybe not a bad thing, but what I can do is I can change my posture a little bit. It seems really simple and insignificant, but what I want to do is just, I want to sit. And I want us to imagine that we're just in my living room or we're in your living room and we're having a Bible study and we're talking about some heavy stuff. And so what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time talking about verses 49 and 50. And just try to get at what is Jesus doing here? Where is the love of God present in these passages? Let's break down these phrases, end of the world, fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing teeth. First of all, end of the world. Now, immediately when I say end of the world, what images come to your mind? Destruction. Armageddon. We've got all different kinds of movies and arts and Hollywood that has brought images to us about what that looks like. Everything ceases to exist. There is no more things. There's there's nothing. It's all gone. It's all over and it all blows up in smoke, right? That's end of the world kinds of images that we typically get when we hear or see that phrase. But that's not necessarily an accurate translation. It wouldn't have been end of the world. It probably would have looked more like end of the age or end of this life. End of the age is sort of a period in time. The way that Jewish people understood this age is that there's this age, this life that we're living in right now, but there is also an age to come a life to come. There is a messianic age when there will be some Messiah figure who will come and usher us into the eternal life that has no more of what exists in this age. Chaos, brokenness, violence, hurt, death, pain, all of the destruction associated with this age. So they're thinking about it in terms of a continuum. This age and the age to come. Not necessarily end of the world, and then there's no more. No, it's a continuum into eternity. That's how the Jewish mindset worked, and that's how Jesus' mindset worked, because he was Jewish. The end of the age. 
that's actually a hopeful thing. Wouldn't we want the age to come, the life to come, to be removed of any chaos and brokenness and hurt and pain and destruction? This is actually a phrase of hope. We move on to fiery furnace. What's that about? How do we talk about a fiery furnace? That just sounds, again, that, that sounds or brings up all kinds of images of something scary. We're going to burn. This is bad. You know, turn or burn. This is where they get these kinds of images. Oftentimes, these are more apocalyptic kinds of words that we see really prevalent in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We get the fiery furnace there that they are thrown into because they don't worship Nebuchadnezzar's God, or they don't worship Nebuchadnezzar, actually. And so they get thrown into the fire. But the song that we just sang, there is another in the fire standing next to me. There was a fourth figure in there. A lot of people believe that was Jesus joining them. There is a fire, there is a storm, but there is also the presence of God in the midst of it. Is that what Jesus is doing here with this fiery furnace kinds of language? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, fiery furnace was actually a positive thing to think about it in terms of you put gold into a fire to refine it, to remove the impurities found in gold so that it would be much more of a pure item. Other times in the New Testament, fiery furnace is used in a negative context. So how is Jesus using it? We could go into fear and anxiety and get all nervous about what he's talking about. Honestly, I think it's just simply this. God wants a place where there is a removal of impure things so that the pure wins out. The pure is refined. And then later on, we get a phrase that only sounds negative. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What about this one? I want to talk about it in terms of some geography, actually. In Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem's kind of set up on a hill, and then there's a lowland in a valley, and that valley is called the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, Jerusalem also is not the highest part of that land. There's another higher part, and what would happen is any Moisture, precipitation that would happen on the highland would come down through the city and then down and it would end up in the valley of Gehenna. First century people, pretty smart and using that as a sanitation system. So imagine, uh, if you will, with me, what that would look like. You don't have uh, waste management coming around or, uh, or whatever city truck going around picking up your trash. No, you put it out in the street and the water from the highland would carry it through the city and down into the valley of Gehenna. That's where your unwanted things, your trash, your refuse, all of that would end up in the Valley of Gehenna. You can imagine what that place might have looked like, smelled like, sounded like, felt like, right? It's a trash dump in the first century. It's disgusting. It smells. Guess what's also there? Rodents, wild animals who are going to go and find whatever they can to survive. There is gnashing of teeth of these wild animals fighting over scraps of whatever was left over by the people up on the higher land. Doesn't sound like a safe and exciting place to go to, but additionally, and this is where it gets a little bit more morbid, unfortunately, there's weeping. Why would there be weeping in the Valley of Gehenna? Oftentimes, because of this Greek-influenced society, and we've talked about this a little bit before, if a baby was born with some kind of deformity, some kind of illness that the family couldn't take care of, 
or because they were influenced by the Greeks, they thought, well, the gods were upset with that family, and so you needed to remove that from your environment so that the gods wouldn't be upset with you. Oftentimes, you would remove that unwanted child from your home. Where do you put unwanted things? In the Valley of Gehenna. Maybe willingly or maybe unwillingly. There might have been some weeping taking place in the Valley of Gehenna. The Valley of Gehenna is what we translate to hell. And even though Gehenna or hell are not explicitly mentioned in this passage, because of the phrases, end of the world, fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth specifically, those are all phrases that eventually get associated with Gehenna and ultimately with our images of hell. Let's talk about hell for just a bit. How do we talk about hell? First of all, I think our images of hell that we get are actually less scriptural, less biblical than they are cultural. What I mean by that is our images of hell are usually conjured up based on a 14th century poem called Dante's Inferno. Some of you maybe had to read it in high school or not, I'm not sure, but it has all of these different kinds of medieval images of, you know, demons with wings and all these different things and people dying in chaos. And, and all of that seems to make sense, but there's different levels of hell and it just continues to expand. It, it's poetry, right? It's not trying to explain in a scientific, mathematical way of what hell looks like, nor could it. See, I think the problem is, is we try to use all of these images and project them onto the scriptures and make the Bible say something that it was never meant to say in the first place. And most of our images of hell are derived from that. But then over time, we have developed our art. We have developed our images of what hell looks like. And over time, we get more modern pictures that look like a big, you know, red demon who's uh, got tattoos and been to CrossFit a couple times. And he's got the pitchfork and all of the different things. And that's, that's what hell looks like. And over time, when we see this over and over in cartoons and in art and in other kinds of imagery and literature, over time, that continues to reinforce our idea of what hell is like, which actually further removes us from what Jesus actually talked about when he talked about hell. And then what that does is continues to reinforce our fear and anxiety, and shame, and guilt. But see, here's the thing. I believe that God is a loving God. I believe that God isn't a God who draws us closer to him because of our fear, and our anxiety, and our worry. Now, some of you who know the Bible might say, well, in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, Fear is not being afraid of God, but simply being in reverence to a holy God. No, the scriptures, if we're consistent, actually says that it is his kindness, his loving kindness, the, Greek, the Hebrew word is hased love, that leads us to repentance. His loving kindness is the thing that causes us to turn toward him and to follow him, not fear and anxiety of what hell might look like or our images that we've developed over time of hell. That is what draws us closer to him. 
So how do we think about hell? How do we think about the love of God in all of this? I had to do a project a while back. I think it was something to do with seminary where I had to come up with my own teaching statement. We were given a very specific uh, task to write one sentence for each uh, line. We had to think about different things like what do you believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about salvation, about heaven and hell or eternity. And uh, if you're not familiar with this, many churches have their own teaching statements. Some are derived from their denomination. If they're non-denominational, they might have their own teaching statement. And all of these churches have different sentences that, that say a particular thing about these matters. We had to come up with our own. Like if we were to create our own, what would you say? And so when I got to the part about hell, I had one sentence and I didn't want to confuse anything with more imagery. In fact, I wanted to use uh, very little imagery at all, and, but still try to be faithful to the text. So here's what I came up with. And I, I just want to say this disclaimer because I don't know everybody in the room. If you're familiar with the scriptures and you love theology, you're going to be able to find holes to poke into my statement. Okay? I'm just saying that ahead of time uh, because you're going to be like, nope, that's incomplete or that's missing something or that, that, I don't agree with that. That's fine. That's fine. I had one sentence. This is what I got. Hell is the eternal experience, completely void of the joy of God's presence. Let's sit with you for just a moment. I'll read it again. Hell is the eternal experience, completely void, empty, of the joy of God's presence. Let me let you into my thinking just a little bit as to why I came up with that concept. First of all, I was thinking about God's presence. How do we think about God's presence? God's presence is all around us. God is omnipresent in this age, and I imagine in the age to come as well. And then I began to think about the way the psalmist writes about it. David, who writes in the Old Testament, the Psalms, he's writing poetry again. But this is what he writes in Psalm 139. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in the darkness, I cannot hide from you. If that's how David understood the presence of God, even before Jesus shows up, and then Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, which is omnipresent. And then if in the age to come, God's presence is all-consuming, how can I, in my finite brain, even begin to imagine a world in which, or an existence in which, God isn't? But God isn't there. How, how can I conceive of that? If his presence is all around. So then I began to wonder, well, if that's true, then what would hell be like? What, what if hell is actually being surrounded by the presence of God, but having the inability to experience the joy of his presence? That actually being in the presence of God is hell for somebody who has spent their lifetime distancing themselves from God. 
I don't know, maybe that's too risky, maybe it's too experimental to talk about hell in that way. I actually like the way that our church, we have a teaching statement. I like the way that we talk about it. We have more than one sentence. It says this, people were created to exist forever. We will either exist eternally separated from God by sin or eternally with God through forgiveness and salvation. To be eternally separated from God is hell. To be eternally in union with him is eternal life. Heaven and hell are real places of eternal existence. So whether it's being able or not being able to experience joy or it is pure separation, whatever it is, however we define those terms, the fact still remains. I don't ever want to know what it's like to live apart from God. I don't ever want to be in a place, in an existence where God isn't with me, where God isn't sustaining me. Regardless of how hard life gets, I don't ever want to be without him. I don't ever want his presence to be separated from me. And you all have to deal with your own perspective of that as well. These are heavy topics, especially six days out from Christmas Eve, right? Maybe this wasn't the sermon you were hoping for or expecting on Christmas. How do we talk about this? I mentioned oftentimes in the first century they would be able to dialogue. There would be some give and take. We'd be able to talk about these back and forth. You'd be able to ask your questions. And while we can't do that right now, what I do want to do is I want to essentially predict what I think might be going on in your heads right now. Based on my years of ministry experience and specifically in student ministries, they had no shame in asking all kinds of questions. I loved the raw honesty and willingness for them to ask the hard questions. But there was a common theme. Whenever we'd talk about heaven and hell, hell specifically, students would always say this. They would always ask this question, and a lot of adults have asked this as well. Why? Why would a good and loving God allow this? Why would a good and loving God allow any kind of separation, any kind of suffering, any kind of hell or Gehenna or whatever? Why would a good and loving God allow that to happen? If you're asking that question today, thank you. Thank you for asking it. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being vulnerable. It's okay to ask those kinds of questions, to have doubts. And it's a fair question. Let's be fair with the other side of the question. Let's also ask the question, why would a just and holy and perfect God allow somebody like me who is imperfect, who has been complicit with injustice, by my words, by my actions, by my inactions, who has participated in hurt and pain and brokenness, why would a just God allow me to experience an eternal existence of love and joy and peace? He's not required 
to allow somebody who is undeserving as me to experience that, and yet he does. And we can get hung up on both of those questions and go back and forth. And I think those are important conversations to have. But I think it's less about putting God on the stand and asking ourselves some deeper questions. There's a third thing to consider. Eternity is of our own choosing. What do I mean by that? If I spend this life, this age, wanting to be intentionally disconnected from God, holy and just and perfect and whatever, whatever adjectives you want to use to describe that God, if I spend this life wanting nothing to do with that God, wanting nothing to do with Christianity, wanting nothing to do with the church or anything around that, why in the afterlife, why in the age to come would I want anything to do with it all of a sudden? Why would I all of a sudden change my mind if I've spent my entire life actively being disconnected from that God, why then would I all of a sudden care about being connected with that God who I've spent my lifetime distancing myself from? And and here's the thing, a true loving God is not going to force himself upon any of us. It's not going to make you into some kind of robot to make you follow him, to make you love him, because at that point, that's not love. Love is freeing going to make you choose him in this life? If I don't choose him in this life, why would I choose him in the life to come? And then at that point, it's not so much God sending anybody to hell, it's me choosing it for myself. It's what I've always wanted, to be away from God. But friends, you can choose him you can. You can choose him today and every day beyond that. In fact, it says that there is no condemnation. There's no fear and anxiety for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You can choose him. And the moment you belong to him, there is no more separation. There's no more distance anymore. There's no more you trying to run after him and try to get to him. No. Now I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And if that's true, if that's true, then that means a truly loving God in the age to come, he has to remove anything that doesn't reflect that. He, he has to if he is a loving God, remove anything that is unloving, anything that brings about more brokenness or chaos or violence or school shootings or threats or death from COVID that brings a sting to us we can't even begin to imagine. That forces us to have to say goodbye to a beautiful soul like Sean Lockhart just a couple days ago. 
who loved Jesus and now is with him, dancing and singing. She used to sit right over there and just worship with her arms wide open, and now she gets a whole new worship experience today. But man, we are ticked off because we miss her. And we feel the sting of her death. We feel the sting of cancer and suicide and violence. A loving God has to remove that in the age to come. And in fact, he's a loving God because he promises that he will. He will. The promise of this parable is that good wins. Good and love triumphs. God is a loving God because in the age to come, evil is no more. Death is no more. There is no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no more hurt. There's no more pain. Simply a God who holds us for all of eternity. What do we do with this? I have this image come to my mind. I've been watching a lot of Christmas movies, as I'm sure all of you have. My kids get to pick all of the Christmas movies. Of course, we've got to watch Home Alone, and then we've got to watch Home Alone 2. And in Home Alone 2, it's, uh, I just, there's got to be no spoiler alerts at this point. It came out in the 90s, so if I ruin it, I'm sorry. But there's this moment where Kevin, the main character, he gets to the airport with his family. They're traveling around the holidays, and it's chaos, right? There's, there's people everywhere in the airport. And Kevin is trying to run after his dad, but he gets distracted by his device. He wants to change the batteries, but then he looks up and he runs after who he thinks is his dad, who's wearing uh, the same coat as his dad was wearing, but it's not his dad, but he follows that guy. And, and eventually he ends up and he's just calling out, dad, dad, wait up. And he eventually gets to the gate, but it's the wrong gate and it's the gate and the plane that takes him to New York while his family is on a plane to Florida. He ends up at the wrong destination. Here's why that image sticks out to me. Because I think we spend this life in, constant, in a constant state of anxiety, thinking that God is some elusive father figure that is running off in the distance, and we're just trying to catch up. Dad, wait up. Dad, wait up. I just want to be with you. And we can't catch him, and then we get distracted by other things or things that look like God or feel like God but aren't actually God, and then we get anxious that we're going to end up on the wrong plane and end up in the wrong destination. And so we live in a constant state of worry and anxiety, thinking that we just can't catch God. See, the hope of Christmas is that that God isn't running away from us. That God came to us. He came to us in our brokenness, in our lostness. He is Emmanuel, God, with us. We were running around scurrying, looking crazy, looking like chickens with our head cut off, trying to figure out life. He came to us, and he found us. And then he sat with us in our brokenness and in our pain. And he even suffered with us. Even to the point of death. This is a parable, not of anxiety and worry and destruction. 
but of hope for a future. A future with no more pain, no more death. Just a God who loves us. Love is present in this parable. I want us to reflect on that, on that vision for the future. No 
best for our future. And here's the thing, God has been doing this ever since the very beginning. All the way back in Genesis 1, he brings order into chaos. And what God does in creation, he'll do again in the new creation. Maybe you feel like your life is chaotic right now. God wants to bring peace and wholeness and love into your life. All you have to do is to say yes to Jesus. What a powerful uh, message that Jared brought to us today. A reminder that well, separation from God and, and hell and all of these things are biblical truths. They don't have to be a source of fear and anxiety, but rather can be look forward to as we, we discuss what it means to be in love with God and to eternally experience his, his presence forever. I hope this week is full of joy and peace and some of those uh, longings for, for being in a relationship with God and all that that means. Uh, if you're going through anything, anything at all, whatever it is, please reach out, let us know. We want to pray with you. We want to be there with you. We want you to belong to this community, whether you're online or in person. So uh, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.